HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. We're talking with some friends from Durango, Colorado, and let's go around the room and introduce them. So let's start with Dave. Yeah, my name's Dave Thibodeau, and I'm a founder and CEO of Ska Brewing down in Durango, Colorado. All right, and Bill? Hey, I'm Bill Graham. I'm uh, also one of the co-founders of Scott Brewing, but I am over in Palisade, Colorado uh, at Peach Street Distillers in Mod Vines. All right. So our good friend, uh, Emily Hudo, uh, Radcraft Beer, I got to know her really well through the Craft Maltsters Guild, and we've done quite a few shows about Craft Malt. Thanks to her. Thank you, Emily. Um, she's been telling me about Scott Brewing for a while. And, you know, when I think of Sky, I kind of forgot that I used to listen to it <laughs> a while ago. And, and uh, so I've been dying to meet you guys. And um, <laughs> I, I, I'm happy that, that I am now. So I don't, why, why don't you start with us, Dave? Just, just tell us about Sky Brewing and why you guys got started. And, and, and tell me more about Durango, Colorado. I, I don't know what the West Slope is. I've actually never been to Colorado. I think most of our listeners are on the East Coast. Okay, yeah. Uh, so Bill and I grew up together, and um, and we uh, we got really into home brewing in 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 high school. Actually, back in the mid '80s, we've we opened Ska Brewing in 1995. So we've been around for almost 27 years now. But when we first got into home brewing, um, there weren't any homebrew shops in Colorado yet. Obviously, it was really novel to to be able to make your own beer and of course give it to people as gifts with the funny labels that we made because nobody had even heard or seen or tasted such a thing at the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, so it was, it was a cool, unique thing. And we, we got the Scott tie cause we were punk ass kids and, and, um, but we kind of had, we had a routine when we would homebrew. We, we kind of had two criteria. Uh, one was that we had to listen to Scott music because that's just what we were really into at the time. Um, 
And then we had to drink our previous batch of homebrew. And if we didn't do those two things, then the batch we were working on clearly wasn't going to turn out. So <laughs> those were the criteria whenever we homebrewed. And then, you know, Bill and I ended up going to college up uh, in the front range of Colorado. So Durango is about six hours from Denver. So Denver Boulder area is what they call the front range of Colorado. And then the area on the west side of Colorado from Palisade, where Bill is now, down to Durango, it's about a four-hour drive, and that area is called the Western Slope. So Bill and I grew up in the Front Range, and uh, and we both went to college up there. Bill went to CU, and I went to a college in Denver called Metropolitan State University. And by the time we graduated, we just we knew we wanted to live in Durango. We were familiar with it. It's a beautiful little place. And we moved down here to... Um, uh, we didn't know we were going to start a brewery, but obviously we were still brewing beer all the time. And when we did actually get up and running in 95, we were talking about what we were going to name it. And when we were making those those beers originally and putting those funny labels on it, we always would put brewed and bottled in Bill's Kitchen Boulder or Dave's Kitchen Denver by Ska Brewing Company, you know? <laughs> and so, and that was just something we put on the labels and never really thought much about it, but then once we were in Durango, I remember talking to Bill and I was thinking, gosh, what, you know, at the time there were a few breweries, but they were all named after dogs or mountains, you know? And I was like, what, uh, what mountain or river are we going to name our brewery after? And Bill's like, no, dude, we got to name it Ska Brewing Company. So we stuck with it. Um, and so I hear what, like, before we hopped on, uh, on the air, you know, you had mentioned, God, that seems kind of crazy and i remember people telling us we were shooting ourselves in the foot um but durango's kind of a rural cowboy town so we we just told everybody it was an acronym for shit kicking ales when we started <laughs> out so we it just depended on who we were talking to but <laughs> so there you go so that's kind of how we got how we got started and ended up in durango and it's just a beautiful place um right in the mountains kind of where the mountains meet the desert we've got a big river called the animus running right through the middle of town. So we've got all of Colorado's outdoor activities at our beck and call. And uh, it's a great spot to have a business, have a brewery. Yeah, so, Dave, so way Dave, back when... You touched on a couple of things. Ahead. Sorry, I need to interrupt there. You touched on a couple of things, but we moved there to ski, man. I mean, it's right there in the mountains. <laughs> and so we're, we're ski bums. That are, we're also ska freaks. Also, the timing of this like might sound funky in the year 2022, but this was 1986 when we first made those batches of beer. And we were really jamming out to that third wave of ska. So anyway, uh, hopefully that gives you a little more backstory. You know, to, to, to give some of my listeners who, you know, a little perspective, what was the third wave of ska? What were some of the bands that you were listening to? Because I, I know you still have, you have bands that play out out in Durango sometimes too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was... You know, ska basically, it, it could be argued that there's a fourth wave happening or maybe that it's been happening for a while. But the but the three original waves of ska were it it started in the late um, in the 60s, really, in Jamaica. And it was kind of a blend of traditional R&B from the West and the United States combined with some Caribbean um, rhythms. And then as that kind of and it, it eventually evolved into reggae so reggae wouldn't exist if it weren't for ska in fact bob marley and the whalers were a were a ska band before reggae was a music genre and uh as the music got to evolve it got popular and kind of jumped the pond 
over to England and then a bunch of uh, working class kids, uh, black kids and white kids um, started forming these bands. And they, yeah, and they called it the the two-tone era or the second wave. And the reason it was two-tone was it was a unity thing amongst the races. So it was it was black kids and white kids, working class kids starting these bands. Uh, and then that, um, and that's where there, a lot of our artwork has black and white checkers to it. And a lot of that's from the second wave. And then when it finally got Oh, wait, so th- that's the why States, there's that checker image, the black and white checks. Yeah, that's where it all all comes from was that second wave of ska. So we've used that since we first started. Um, but that was a big thing in that second wave of ska over in England. Um, and then the third wave was when it kind of hopped the pond back to the United States and kind of started mixing with punk rock. And you started getting punk rock with horns and they had that that uptick uh, on the beat and it got a lot faster. And some of those bands, you and I were just talking, uh, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, which played our 25th slash 26th anniversary here just in September. And um, some of the other bands were the Toasters, which are still around and good friends of ours. And uh, Pie Tasters. Quite a, yeah, Pie Tasters. Pie Tasters is a good one. Still. And those guys actually, speaking of New York City, the, the Pie Tasters and the Toasters used to actually have a record label uh, in New York City called Moon Records. Oh, wow. And they had a little retail, yeah, they had a little retail shop there. And so when we started, Moon Records was a big, kind of a big thing for, for Bill and I. Those were the bands we were really into, along with the two-tone or second wave bands, which were bands like The Specials, The English Beat, The Selector. So a little, little back history there on ska music. Yeah, <laughs> I liked it. I'm a, gonna, a lot of you go, third Bill, wave. Bob, Jimmy, I keep having to talk of you, man. Give me a second. Here. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's my fault. No, that, <laughs> I'm a that's how we're gonna do it, man. I, I want you to talk. So. <laughs> the, the the but those third wave bands, like so, more a lot of uh, a lot of them were coming out of the the West too, West Coast. So probably the most famous uh, coming out of the West that you would know is uh, no doubt with Gwen Stefani heading them up. Oh wow. Yeah, cool. right. So you know, go, going way back then, like with with brewing and stuff, early on, were you both brewing? You know, at, at some point, did did you do you guys still both brew? Did, did you know? Did you guys evolve? I mean, you've, you've been doing this a long time. So, was one of you more more drawn to brewing than the other? Because you guys have been partners a long time. We've yeah, we've been around forever. I I used to uh, like head up the production end of things, but uh, there was. You know, understand, man, it was just Dave and I, and this was a really rapidly growing little, uh, you know, brewery and uh, microbrewery is what everybody called it back then. Now it's craft brewing, et cetera. But we, we kind of got drawn into different parts of it. Dave's forte is, as you can tell from this, is is talking to people and communications. And, and uh, so he kind of naturally gravitated towards the sales end of things. I'm better off, you know, voice for or face for radio here and uh, kind of hold up in the back with the boys. But so I ended up doing uh, more of the, more of the brewing hands-on things, but it was, Dave still did, you know, a lot of it. We, we did a little bit of everything, particularly at the beginning. And then over time uh, you kind of morph into the roles that like just need to be filled. And for us, it was kind of a, a hole there in the, um, in the laboratory, you know, like 
maintaining the yeast, making sure that like the beers that we were putting out weren't contaminated, stuff like that. So I ended up just by need, not, not by skill, uh, doing a lot of the lab work and working with the brewers that way. Um, and thank God I'm not the one back there anymore. Uh, you know, the school of hard knocks will teach you a lot, but it's pretty hard to get that, uh, that chemistry biology background out of a book, you know? Wow. That's great. And then, and, and Dave, for you, like as you guys were, were growing, I mean, this was ska brewing, you know, how, how big was it? And you know, how many people work for you? And you know, when, when did it change? Was it five years in 10 years in? Yeah, we had a, we had another friend, um, who joined us as our third partner. His name's Matt Vincent. And, uh, after our first year in business and, he was um we were fortunate enough he was the only other home brewer that we knew of in durango and he actually was working at durango brewing company um so bringing him on after a year was a big help and i'll and i'll and i'll definitely say bill is he, he's he's selling himself short there he's a much better technical brewer and distiller by far beyond what i ever was and uh so yeah, it was, you know, those first five years, it was pretty much the three of us doing a lot of it. We had another guy that was helping with deliveries and another guy that was ultimately our head brewer, but we all kind of shared a lot of the duties. And then in the early aughts, uh, we really started ramping up and there was a, a period of, because when we opened, um, that was kind of that first bigger wave. And in the later 90s, mid to later 90s, you did see a lot of those breweries kind of drop off. The trajectory was still up, but um, a number of breweries went out of business. And then the, the, the long, steep trajectory really started to kick in and just got steeper and steeper over that next decade until, uh, you know, the early 2010s. Um, but in that time, you know, we built the building in 2008 that we're currently in. Uh, we call it the Scott Brewing World Headquarters. It's only about a, it's only about a, yeah, we are, we always, we pretend like we're a lot bigger than we are, but we're about 70 employees and um, we sell beer in most of the states surrounding Colorado, about 10 other states. And uh, we actually do do a fair amount of international sales. Um, we had a number of things happen uh, a, a, quite a few years ago that really kind of launched us in Sweden of all places through some chance meetings, but I don't know if you're familiar with Sweden, but they have a, it's a monopoly, basically. All the liquor stores are government owned and they actually refer to it as the monopoly or the system bolage. And, uh, and you know, once you're really in there, there's 400 of those stores. So you're kind of, you can do limited launches there if, you, if you're lucky enough to win that listing. Um, but once you're really in there, um, there's 400 stores. So uh, Sweden's actually our second biggest market after Colorado. It's, it really has done well for us for a lot of years, mostly with one beer, our, our flagship modus operandi. But yeah, so it's a nice, um, we've got a distribution company too. Actually, our wives own that. And then uh, the brewery itself has about 70 employees. And um, we have a nice pub restaurant side to it here in Durango. And then uh, we do, you know, basically self-distribution around southwestern Colorado. And then a wholesale distribution in the surrounding states. Wow. Hey, let's let's talk a little bit about your beers. Uh, I don't know if Bill, you want to tell me a little bit. Tell me about Modus Operandi and and a couple of the other uh, beers that are that that people know you for. 
Sure, sure. Um, Modus was, um, it, it started off as a beer that we were making for the local ski area. Um, and the local ski area, which is Purgatory Resort, um, had a bar there called Purgies. And uh, we made a, a beer called Purgies Pale Ale. And over time... <laughs> Yeah, over time, we, we just kept kind of playing around with Purgy's Pale Ale. Um, and originally, we wanted to get like, uh, I wanted to do a single hop Cascade beer. And, then, and this was a long time ago. So Cascade being the hops and just, just that one variety into a pale ale or, you know, at the time, uh, you know, morphing into that IPA, you know, range. Uh, you got to understand this was years ago. So... IPA wasn't quite the the ridge that it is now or, or was, you know, even just a few years ago. But um, well, we played around with that and we kept brewing it. And then um, we kind of, we started moving into this new building that Dave mentioned. And uh, the size of everything really ramped up, you know, to, from like a 10 barrel brew house up to a 30 barrel brew house, three times the size, you know, 240 barrel fermenters all these things, oh, yeah. uh, stuff was changing rapidly in Colorado, you know, uh, particularly along the marijuana front, um, and how like legalization was about to happen, some other things. And really, so that conversation of trying to make a single hop pale ale kind of fell to the wayside of like, how can we make this thing taste like a, you know, a big juicy bong hit? So, uh, we ramped it up with uh, a bunch of sea hops, the Cascades and the Columbus, and uh, go ahead. We, you know, we we added some backbone to it because the, you know, the IBUs are so so big there um, that it needed quite a bit of alcohol and, and some uh, some like sweetness to kind of hopefully balance it a little bit. So some caramel malts. Um, anyway, we. Uh, we we went for it, man. Like we made this gigantic bong hit in a in a in a beer bottle, and we were like, you know what? It would be even cooler is let's throw it in a beer can. So we're the second uh, craft brewery in cans, right behind Oscar Blues here, our buddies in in Colorado, by about a couple of weeks, and we threw the Modus Operandi into cans, and man, that blew everybody's mind. Right. You had a bong hit in a can and it was this giant IPA. Uh, so really quickly moved us into one of our flagship beers and has stayed there ever since. So I don't know. That, that was a little bit of everything without getting too nerded out. No, it's good. We'll talk about Colorado. So now we can talk about cannabis a little bit. Yeah. Right? Um, no, no, man, like we're talking weed. Cannabis yeah. is like, you know, <laughs> come on. Cannabis is East Coast for investors, bro. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but how did weed, you know, legal weed and, and beer go hand in hand, uh, you know, s since it became legal? Like, is there a... You know, Dave, Dave can probably talk about it because we, we're a little more involved with it than just me joking around being, you know, talking weed and whatnot. But... Um, at the beginning, it was it was a little nerve wracking, man. It was like, what is this really going to do, you know, to our market? Are people even, you know, are they going to drink beer? Are they just going to smoke pot? You know, like what 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 does this look like? Yeah. But of course, you know, of course, there's room, and of course, we were 
we're fans. So uh, we kind of, you know, uh, welcomed it and uh, tried to embrace as much of the, you know, culture as we could. And even to the point where there was talk where we were going to, you know, maybe split Modus out into a, uh, um, like a style of weed, like a, a, a branded yes, marijuana <laughs> that you could buy from the dispensaries. But, but Dave's got more of that. And we actually make a few products there at the brewery still that, that are kind of cannabis based. Yeah, we, we actually, I mean, it was pretty interesting because, you know, all of our lives, not all of our lives, but beginning like in, in college and maybe even high school, we were, I would say we were advocates of, of legalization. And, um, and I think once like the rea- that actually started to become a reality and we had our, our brewery up and running and, and doing well, it was, it did became like, it became an issue. And I didn't know how I felt about it. Like, morally ethically as far as business goes um suddenly we had something competing with what was our bread and butter being craft beer and uh so it was a big concern and it was it was definitely a conversation that we had at length you know when legalization first happened out here in Colorado but since um our other partner Matt Vincent uh he's spun off he's still an equal partner of ours it's still the three of us that that have been here all these years he uh he started a ska fabricating company. He makes depalletizers for craft breweries all around the world. But he's also a partner in a business called Ojai Beverages, and they make both CBD and THC sparkling waters. And we're actually there. Um, we actually make the CBD version, can it, and distribute it. So we we do have our, our fingers in there a little bit. Of course, there's... There's not really much crossover as far as the legalities go on the THC side. So we can't have THC here at the brewery, but the CBD side, um, it's interesting. And selling, you know, CBD sparkling water uh, around Southwest Colorado and making it and canning it. So we kind of have a, a little bit of all of that going on. But it's, you know, it's been enough years now that it's it's really something that's, I, I don't think about it every day like I used to. I mean, it's not so unique now it's just life you know yeah and and new york state's just going through it now a lot of people are having the same conversations i know people that own a bar who are now going out and and renting a cafe space because they want to be lined up for a consumption cafe which is a whole nother story but i'm glad we talked about this because i'm I'm (laughs) going to have you guys back on again with some new york people we are going to talk about weed versus beer there was one time i wanted to talk i saw no i was we used to talk a lot to hop growers and again, like on the last eight, 10 years, there was a, a growth of hop, small hop growers in New York when there hadn't really been any for a long time. And I saw an article a few years ago um, about Colorado hop growers. And it said that the, 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 there was some challenge. And I wondered if the challenge for the growers was that, is it better to grow marijuana? You know, if you're a small grower, you're going to choose, so I was, I was wondering about the impact on the supply chain. You know, if you're a small grower, are you going to choose growing c- cannabis over hops if, you, if you're able to do either? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that Bill's probably got a different perspective on that for me because he's actually in um, a part of Colorado that, I mean, it's one of the two designated viticultural regions that we have in Colorado, but it's, it's a big fruit growing 
region. Um, you probably haven't heard of Palisade Peaches in New York, but in the western half of the country, that name has some cachet when you're talking about fruit and and grapes. Um, and Bill's a Bill's a hop farmer himself. I mean, a, uh, a grape farmer or a vintner, uh, I guess, or I guess that's a winemaker. But he's he's got his own vineyard up there in Palisade, and he's got close relationships with a lot of the farmers in that region. But thinking about um, some of the people that I know that grow hops here in Colorado, I think it really comes down. It's a question of, uh, I mean, first of all, do you, do you, do you understand weed at that level where you want it to be part of your life? Um, I think I personally, I don't, I don't, I don't indulge nearly like to the level that I used to. Um, it doesn't mean as much to me anymore. Um, I still believe in legalization, obviously, but it's, if it were up to me, I would choose hops without even thinking too much about it, assuming I could grow the varieties or whatever that the other specifics were there, you know, grow the varieties that I wanted to. But I think about some of the hop farms between here and where Bill lives and um, would they, would they grow weed? The funny thing is at the same time between where Bill lives and where I live, there are quite a few marijuana farms. Um, some obviously just hemp or, or, cannabis or cbd some obviously thc there is no shortage of of marijuana farms around colorado you see them everywhere and there's a lot of indoor if you're a retailer you have to have your own grow that you're associated with a grow being the growing operation um so i think it really depends you know it's still somewhat of a fledgling industry and there's a lot of logistics there and i think rules are going to continue to change and evolve so I think it's a pretty complicated subject. I'd love to, you know, if you had some experts that were just beating the topic around, it'd be, it would be a fun conversation to be part of. I don't know, Bill, maybe you've got more insight being in a region where you just spit on the ground and shit grows. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the spit plants just pop right up. Um, well, you, the, put, you chew in the seeds all the time. So maybe your <laughs> spit's got seeds in them. Right. <laughs> Um, no, I, I tend to agree with like kind of w what Dave said there is like, what is like the individual growers passion, you know, um, because in Colorado, at least we've seen kind of the gamut They in like, uh, Jimmy, you talked about the, like you read an article where growing hops was kind of a challenge and that's part of like Colorado is you know, you got, Dave talked about it at the beginning, you got the Western slope and the Eastern slope and they're totally different uh, microclimates, you know, within the same state. So it's like really difficult to be kind of, you know, talking about the state as a whole with this. But I know that uh, some of the hop trials over on the Eastern slope have had, you know, everything from hail, wipe it out to tornadoes to, uh, you know, because you got to think from, you know, that Denver area, that Denver Boulder area, all the way out, you know, the next stop is, you know, Kansas, Nebraska. So tornadoes come ripping through that region <laughs> and uh, wipe out the hop fields. But over here where we're at, uh, there, there's some more hops being grown. Um, I think it's just been challenging uh, because the climate, you know, we're, we're a little bit hot. We're a little bit dry. We're a little bit south. So it's so much easier, I think, to get, uh, you know, good quality crops of hops out of uh, the Pacific Northwest, you know, out of the Yakima region and, 
And this area that I'm in is really similar to that Yakima region. You know, there's a lot of cherry farms here. There's a lot of grapes. Yakima, same deal, cherry farms and, and uh, or cherry orchards, excuse me. And, uh, um, you know, there there's a lot of winemaking, that Washington winemaking area is right there as well as this Colorado area. So it's similar, but I think we're just a little bit hot on that end. And then the way that that kind of transitions to weed or whether it's THC or, or the CBD, um, what they're trying to grow, hemp or hemp or I guess cannabis, but um, the uh, it, it, it's weird. It, it, Colorado, it's kind of went from that, like everybody jumped on the bandwagon and was growing THC weed to sell at the dispensaries. Then the state got on board and changed some of the laws so that if you're going to sell THC from your dispensary, you have to control it and grow it. Um, so that put the kibosh on just, you know, Joe Guy putting the seed in the ground. Um, and then uh, uh, then all of a sudden there was the, you know, the CBD rush and, and you know, bales and bales of, uh, of, of hemp being grown. And I think, you know, hemp is where it's at, but... We're, we're still missing some of that infrastructure of like, you know, the fiber. What, what do you do with the rest of the plant? You know, like there's there's all these other things that we still need to kind of play catch up on. So I'm not giving you much of an answer <laughs> is I know that hops are challenging. And I know that that uh, that growing uh, growing marijuana or the, growing the hemp is uh, it's always changing. The landscape's always changing or because it's new. You know, it seems like if they can figure out a way to tax it and get involved with it, they do. And then that changes the landscape of what's left for the farmers and the, and the dispensaries and the people that want to sell it. Oh, yeah. So um, what, as you guys were, were growing from just Scott Brewing, tell me about opening up uh, the Spirits Company. Sure. You know, what, what was the um, impetus and, you know... Well, <laughs> how did that fit your it, interest? Very, very much the same story as the brewery, man. We were uh, screwing. It was kind of because we could. Um, we were screwing around, and I took a quarter barrel keg and cut the top off. Talked to our sanitary welder guy. Um, showed him some plans to make a reflux column. Um, we busted the window out of a Toyota Celica that was like abandoned somewhere, or maybe it was a different brand than Celica, but something, you get the idea. Broke the window out because the uh, safety glass broke into these little perfect squares on that particular brand. And uh, that, those were the rashing rings that we ended up packing the column on this quarter barrel keg with. And, uh, then we kind of lucked out too. We had a friend that uh, made a batch of uh, cider, and he was a brewer. And the the cider, you know, uh, I forget what it's called. Dave, maybe you could help me out. But it it can't be all just apple juice. It has to have a certain amount of barley. I think fifty uh, percent barley, something like that, in order to be made in a brewery. So it's kind of a hybrid beer, and these are called like analyzed. a sizer. Is that what they call it? Kind of, Dave. You know? Yeah, and the deal was when you, um, if you were a licensed, uh, either brew pub or manufacturing brewery in Colorado, 
then um, anything you made had to have 50% malt, malt in it. And so um, we had friends that, that were professional brewers that were brewing what they were calling ciders, even though it was half barley, uh, because that was the only legal way they could produce it. Because to actually have a cider uh, manufacturing, that's a wine license in Colorado. Um, so they've just, they were a brew pub in Denver, um, that was making a, making a, a, a cider that was half barley, but they called it their cider or I think sizer. Um, but they called it a cider and that, that was really it. It was a legality thing. Sure. Well, long story short was you kind of blew it and it was it wasn't tasting very good. <laughs> so we had this, uh, uh, endless supply of apple based uh beer or or liquid that uh that we could kind of play around with this uh quarter barrel still that we had built so uh we just kind of started making some different batches uh, in, in my barn um home distillings at that time was illegal I, I don't think it's changed i think it still is illegal um but anyway we were uh maybe doing something illegal up in my barn uh, <laughs> with, with this quarter barrels uh, still and uh, just having, you know, like dude, cranking up the bluegrass music and uh, uh, distilling some stuff out and trying to see what we could make. And anyway, over, over time that like kept distilling, trying to, trying to get it uh, more perfected, understanding what, how the oak interplays with the spirit and that, that aging process. And then, uh, Lo and behold, we ran across a distilling seminar at uh, Michigan State University. So Dave and I and a, and a third guy, uh, different from the, the brewery, um, packed up and went out to Michigan State and, and spent, a, spent a weekend distilling. Uh, we discovered some of the different uh, stills, um, different processes, uh, those kind of things, you know, and... Uh, at that, at that point in time in Colorado, there was one other distillery that at that point in time, there was zero. But uh, anyway, by the time we found a space, found the still, felt like we uh, at least had a kind of a clue on how to take beer and turn it into, you know, concentrated beer, um, that we could go for it. And I don't know. I mean, that that's kind of the story of the distillery is... Uh, it, like one brewery grew into another kind of. Oh. Hey, Dave, did, did you just crack a beer? I did. <laughs> What'd you crack? Good ear. Good ear. <laughs> what did I crack? Yeah, um, you got to tell me more about your beers. I'm actually, yeah, this one's a this one's one of my favorite beers. This is called Pink Vapor Stew. I know it's kind of a gross name, but it's actually a lyric in another band. Um, I don't think you could quite call them a third wave ska band, but they are heavily ska influenced and they're called Fishbone. Um, big influence on a lot of the bigger bands uh, that, that are around today. Um, but they've always been kind of behind the scenes, but, but Pink Vapor Stew is a lyric out of there. But this, this beer was based on uh, a favorite juice uh, that I like to make at my house. I have a juicer that I use all the time. And my favorite juice is, ginger beets carrots and apples and so i asked our uh i asked our brew team to make a sour version of that juice as a beer 
um, a number of years ago and they did it a few years ago and it's one of our regular beers. Uh, it's got kind of a, it's got its own kind of cult following. Obviously it's a sour beer. It's bright pink. It's really earthy. Um, I mean, it's got that dirty side of beets to it. It definitely tastes like beets. It looks <laughs> like beets, but it's got that really earthy dirtiness to it, which I love. And then like the ginger and the apple, you don't really taste the carrot, but, but the ginger kind of shines a little bit and then the apple just smooths it out. And it's, um, like I said, it's got a cult following. It's a big one in our tasting room here. It's the kind of thing. It's so pretty when people see it, you know, the person sitting next to them has to try it. And whether they're a sour beer fan or a beet fan, which there's a lot of people that are neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I haven't heard of a beet. I actually, I would like that, that as a juice myself. I haven't heard of a beet beer. Um, it's do, delicious. Do, do, do they, do they juice shocked. everything and then put it in with the brewing? Or are they using whole? No, the whole... only thing we actually juice here is the ginger root itself. Um, and so, yeah, we use a juicer on the ginger root. And then the, uh, the beets are actually dehydrated. Um, so we kind of reconstitute those and, uh, it's, and then we add apple juice and then, it, but it's, and the carrots are the same as the beets. So it's, uh, they're all in there, but they're all kind of come in different forms, um, as we add them to the beer. Wow. Pink vapor. Hey, when you guys started, yeah. how, you know, looking back now, how important was it that you guys had, had been homebrewing for fun? I, I think, totally I mean, vital. Bill, you tell me if, if you agree with this. Yeah. I would say vital, not just technically and and being at the the front edge of really kind of learning you know it's not uncommon at all now to to know professional brewers that started out as home brewers but back then we were the few pro brewers that we knew were kind of like wow i mean you guys are jumping into this from home brewing um and it seemed like a giant step and a giant risk um but the beauty of it in my mind and obviously like bill mentioned i'm sales and marketing kind of guy but uh, I also really like the life that I live and I don't, I don't take it for granted. And I think homebrewing has always been something, no matter who you talk to, that's been fun. And it's a, it's a process and an experience. And it's, you know, there's a reason they call it brew day. And, you know, you get your buddies <laughs> together, you're out in the garage, you're in the kitchen or whatever, and it's an event. And, um, and it's fun, whether you've got a certain music you listen to or your weird superstitions that go along with it. And I think what's cool about what we've done particularly was we never really changed as we went into professional brewing and, and then grew. Um, we're still listening to the same fun music. We're still <laughs> dancing, you know, we still like to, we really enjoy the process. And I think, you know, ultimately that finds its way into the beer. Um, and you could, I mean, that's maybe kind of a way to, 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 to talk about maybe terroir as far as brewing goes, you know, it's, yeah. it's part of the, um, environment and that's, and it finds its way into the final beer. And I think, so I think it's crucial, our home brewing background, how we got into it because the process, the fun, the energy all becomes part of the final product. And I think people can really, re it resonates with people. Oh yeah. Bill? No, totally, man. Uh, Dave hit on everything. It's like, it's that, uh, I, I would just describe it as the culture. And it's like, uh, uh, you know, let let the factory brewers work at Budweiser, you know. <laughs> All right. Hey, we're, we're after a great start. We're going to take a short break. Be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. 
I'm Chava Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhattan, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sashes Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Become a member and support us at heritageradionetwork.org. There's over 30 shows about farms, chefs, cocktails, and beer, and more on heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking with the guys from Scott Brewing, Bill and Dave. And uh, be- before we, we did the recording, I got inspired, and I listened to the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. And I'd never listened to them before, but uh, I- I'm getting a sense of what, what Scott Brewing is like. And uh, our friend Emily Hudo from Radcraft Beer, who introduced us, she was saying that that was a big part of – the scene in Durango is it just because of you guys you know or is there really like a ska ska fan scene going on there or that's just you guys I yeah I think I mean honestly like I mentioned before it was a you know it's a it's a rural town and it does have a small college small liberal arts college Fort Lewis and uh, that's about 4,000 students so some of those students are definitely familiar with it um, more so now probably than when we started, but, uh, I would say in Durango, I wouldn't say it's a scene. And that what's really interesting about ska music is there is definitely a scene associated with it. And it's things like scooters, Vespas, Lambrettas, uh, dress the way people, the way people dress the checkers. Um, there's just, and there's so much to it. And then it, it ties itself to like, you had mentioned the jam and, mod music and you think about mods versus rockers as far as like motorcycles versus scooters and all these different sorts of scenes that can be tied to ska music but Durango definitely doesn't have a scene like that um it's and but I think I think a lot more people in Durango are aware of ska music and what it is um probably because of us I mean kind of going out on a, a limb but you know, well, like I said, we we said it was an acronym for shit kicking ales because that just <laughs> made a lot more sense to people. But it's interesting, like you mentioned the boss tones, and when we had our anniversary party, we always have a pretty well known ska band play our anniversary party every September. And the boss tones have been around for years and years. In fact, the first time Bill and I saw them was in nineteen ninety-two. And they broke up just a couple shows after our anniversary party this year. And uh but the people that come to our anniversary um, party are from all over the country, actually all over the world. And that is a scene 
that you don't see on any other day in Durango. There is a lot of real ska freaks and craft beer freaks. We invite a lot of our friends that are professional brewers to pour beer from their respective breweries at that party. But it's a, it's a ska scene for sure, but only for one day a year. Well, that's fun. Hey, I've got a question that from Emily. It says, ask them about the words on the lips of their cans. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> uh, well, I was going to, so we, okay, Bill mentioned it earlier, you know, just behind Oscar Blues, we actually started canning beer back in 2003. So as far as craft brewing goes, we were really the second brewery just by, like Bill said, a few weeks um, to start canning our beer. And uh, we thought it was pretty novel at the time, but we we put a set of words around the top of the can. We're kind of big on inside jokes. And so we put a bunch of words around the top of the can that they were either an inside kind of joke or they were something you had to look up or Google, or maybe it was tied to what we believed the idea behind cans was, at least for us at the time. Um, maybe, you know, how how accessible they are if you're living in a, a, a community that really thrives on outdoor activities, for example. So I think we had like rafting or fishing maybe on that first can, but then we also just had random weird stuff like the Modus can has HHH on it. And HHH is a reference to the Hash House Harriers, which <laughs> that's something everybody could Google if they're not aware of it. But it's basically a, a drinking club with a running problem. Um, <laughs> and that's an international thing started by an expat like in Malaysia in the 50s or something. But Bill and I were both Hash House Harriers. So we have all these kind of inside references and and just and it's fun to just have and Bill, I don't know if you recall doing this, but we would just have these brain these 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 brainstorming sessions about what the words on the around the lip of the can were gonna be. And uh it's been a fun thing. We still do it to this day with every beer we make. Wow. Sure. And and the whole point with even back then getting into cans was you know, craft beer, particularly at that time, was so glass heavy. And in Colorado, where, you know, 90% of your life seems to be outdoors, be it skiing, hiking, backpacking, like you said, you know, fishing, rafting, uh, windsurfing, you name it. Um, it. It just, it made sense for us to get into camp. So we wanted to highlight that, you know, even, you know, golf, like you just don't, broken glass hurts your dog and stuff and and it, it really <laughs> really made us want to uh you know try to push people away from glass uh the efficiency of cans everything about it you know you ship a pallet it's 28 percent more beer it's 28 more 28 percent more efficient all these great things that coming out of uh aluminum for beer in particular so uh I think that was like a lot of the motivation. Then the other thing, like Dave said, is like, I, I don't know if we just suffer from boredom or what it is, but it seems like we always get together and come up with uh, these goofy ideas of <laughs> like, you know, what's the, what's the most esoteric thing that nobody's going to understand that we can put on this thing, you know, and, and challenge ourselves. So, uh, I'll, tell you, do, do, I'll make a request. One of your cans next year, just put on, the lip, but broken glass hurts your dog. <laughs> <laughs> right? I like that. It might be the title of this show. That's pretty good. 
Yeah, hey, is that not the most Colorado thing you've ever heard? <laughs> <laughs> it's thoughtful for sure. You know, hey, um, you know, more about you guys. So you guys are both growers. Let's talk about that. Um, so Dave, you're a gardener. Yeah, it's funny enough. I the minute I get off this podcast, I've got a group of fifty different people um, from CSU, which is the Colorado State University out of Fort Collins. They have extensions offices um, all around the state of Colorado that help people with their gardens and different aspects of, of horticulture and, and just growing things, trees. It's everything from pruning to, to growing vegetables and plants. And they have a Colorado Master Gardener program. It's not – there's a, a Master Gardener program in most states that I'm aware of. I don't know exactly where, but uh, – and it's usually through – uh, an extensions program at a state college system, but I've got 50 of those guys coming in here today for a tour. And that's who actually does the Colorado master gardeners program of which I am certified. Um, me, I'm mostly focused on vegetables. I used to have a few acres just South of town and I really like growing as much of my own food uh, as possible. I like to, I like to be part of that journey from uh, the beginning so that I really know where my food comes from. And I think Bill you know, as takes it even a step further with his, uh, with his vineyard. And he's actually got a farm with, with animals and, um, grows quite a bit too. And I think Bill and I have kind of inspired each other over the years. And, and I think it's really led to a life that, uh, I mean, when I go up and visit Bill in Palisade, it's, it's mind boggling and awe inspiring because this place is so beautiful and, and things are just growing everywhere. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a neat little life that he's carved out for himself up there and it's, and I'm envious, but yeah, I think, uh, and I think for both of us, Bill, you can go ahead and answer, but it's a, it's a lot of that journey. And I know Jimmy, you've done a, lot, a number of shows that where you touch on this too. And I know that you're involved with um, some of this stuff back in New York at the same time about really understanding your food and where it comes from. And I know obviously you had a few restaurants and so you've got, uh, you've got this aspect to your life too. So I think you, you kind of know what I'm talking about, but Bill, you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks, Dave. The, the vineyard um, is pretty, you know, it's pretty cut and dry. We grow grapes and, and get them off to uh, different winemakers. I was growing um, uh, like kind of the perfect setup for Chateau and Neuf de Pop. Uh, so Cab Sauvignon, Cab Franc, uh, Malbec, and Cunois. And um, just, uh, it was uh, 2020, man, the, the, such a great year for everybody, right? <laughs> uh, but anyway, October of 2020, we had uh, one of these weather events that was just, you know, just right to be wrong. It was a day of about 72 degrees, and by... Uh, midnight or uh two in the morning that same uh the next following morning it was uh down to about 15 degrees so it was just kind of weather whiplash anyway it caused all the or not all of the vines but a significant amount that weren't hardened off yet um to uh the trunks basically failed the, there's too much liquid up in the trunks to withstand that cold of a temperature so they they split open um so just learning experience, I've, I've just finished replanting um, about 21 rows, so about uh, two, two-thirds, a little, 
little over half of the vineyard here. Um, and I've replanted with uh, some Austrian varieties, varietals um, that uh, I'm, my hope is that these Austrian varietals are, are a little more uh, cold tolerant, particularly in the fall there. Um, but anyway, uh, Lemberger is in the ground now and uh, uh, Zweigelt is, is in the ground too. So uh, I've got a, a local winemaker that's pretty excited about making it as well as a uh, local restaurant that's uh, excited about buying the wine uh, after, it's, after it's made. Um, so that, that's pretty exciting. And, you know, to Dave's point too, we, my son uh, shows... 4-H pigs at the fair, and so we raised some uh, show pigs, and these show pigs that don't quite make the cut, if you will, um, end up in our in our pubs. Uh, both the the pub that's here in Palisade and the pub that's in Durango will will buy these uh, will buy the pigs and and uh, custom butcher them for for the restaurant, and that that's definitely a cool thing. Um, as well as what ends up in our own own freezer. So uh, it is it's pretty cool to know where your food came from and the, and the people that grew it and kind of the story that, you know, uh, here's an 11 year old boy that uh, put together this beautiful show pig um, and, uh, you know, walked it, hand fed it every twice a day and walked it every day and, and all these great things that, so it was really, you know, treated with love and respect and, uh, uh, no bad vibes at all. Wow. That's beautiful. Well, so then, then with, with your spirits, so Pete, the peach, it's, what's it called? Peach street spirits. Yep. Peach um, street distillery. Are, are you growing anything that you're distilling with? I'm, Tell us about how that works. We, we get it everything right here from the valley. So we're definitely like a uh, green to glass, fruit to glass, scratch distillery. Like uh, we're really unique that way. But me personally growing it, uh, we're not quite at that level. I just, uh, I, I'm the, the wine uh, is better off as wine than it is distilled. Um, the little bit of grape spirit that we do make, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, gewürzt grapes here in the valley uh, that don't really have a home. So we're able to get them a lot cheaper into the distillery. So uh, a, a matter of economics there, <laughs> but they are grown right here. Uh, I mean, this this little uh, this little valley uh, isn't very, it isn't very big. So it's, it's pretty cool when we talk about like the size. So, uh, when we're making bourbon, um, you know, our corn farmers three miles away is all. And, you know, he brings that corn right over, cracks it at the farm and then brings it over to us. And we're, you know, mashing it and making sour or sour mash and, and creating bourbon, uh, from that corn. Um, we, grow pears inside of the bottles because we know the farmer uh, just right up the road with the pear orchard and uh, we can go up personally and hang the bottles in the trees and get the pears to grow inside of the bottles for our pear brandy and yeah, that's there's amazing. some stuff I, I still that's can't really believe cool. that, that actually 
works, but I've seen it. We, we, we joke around with people and tell them that we assemble the pair inside of the bottle, right? You know, like the shift in the bottle. But um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it only sort of works, Jimmy. Like, I, I think uh, we get about a 30% success rate, and we're pretty stoked with that. But, um, yeah, that's happening right now. I, I want to say the guys are out there right now hanging uh, pretty close to 1,200 bottles in the trees. Wow. So, Bill, Bill well, one thing you're drinking or that we should drink, either from P the Peach Street Spirits or from Scott Brewing? You know, I'm, I'm thirsty. Am, I'm a beer guy. I, I really, like, I have fun creating the spirits and, and kind of nerding out on it. But if I'm going to, and I have fun growing, growing the grapes for wine, and I appreciate all the wine varieties. But, man, at, at heart, I'm just, I'm a beer guy. And... To that end, too, I'm kind of old school. I like uh, dark beers that are hoppy, so porter. Uh, my favorite beer coming out of Ska and always has been is the 10-pin porter. All right, that sounds good. And yeah. Dave, so back to your growing and then what you're going to drink. We're going to close out soon. But So, Dave, with your garden, do you ever grow your juice? Um, I do, totally. Carrots and beets, um, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, go ahead. <laughs> keep going because i knew i knew you're gonna say yes so yeah i uh you know i have i don't have the amount of land that i used to have so i do all raised beds in my backyard now and uh and a half of them is reserved just for carrots and beets um and i try to get started kind of early we don't have the longest growing season down here but um just because those extreme temperature swings like Bill was talking about that really hit him um, in the fall of 2020. But, but so yeah, carrots and beets and, you know, beets are pretty easy to grow. There's a lot of tricks to carrots. They hate competing with each other. So learning how to grow those two vegetables has always been crucial, but um, yeah. And then, you know, I like to get the, I like to get what I can as far as the apples from, there's there's a gleaning program around here, and if you don't know what that is, it's kind of uh, people share their fruit if they have excess fruit on their trees. There's a lot of apples, and there's a heritage apple project, you know, trying to find heritage varieties that that might not be so popular that have existed for hundreds of years in Southwest Colorado. So there's a lot of people with old orchards, old apple trees. It's really easy to come by apples. Um, ginger's the thing I've. I've not really tried, um, so that I usually buy from the store, but that's the only ingredient uh, as long as I can harvest. You know, early in the year, I'm buying it from the store, but second half of the summer, I'm harvesting my own beets and carrots and, and apples for my juice. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so Durango, it's, it's, I've heard that where you are, you mentioned apples, that that's a, it's near New Mexico, right? And that's uh, an area where there were like right. a lot of heritage ciders long time ago right yeah yeah we have we have some really fun cideries down here fence line are some good friends of ours and they're really involved in this heritage project and uh they know a lot about these old varieties of apples and it's really neat to go visit them and just learn about some of the special stuff that's really and a lot of it actually came from like upstate new york and the new york area um there were trees planted here in you know in the 1800s that were just that were brought from immigrants and it's um it's really neat to kind of get the history and to try to find new varieties around here and it's kind of it's kind of fun watching that program and and getting into those ciders i'm not 
the biggest cider drinker, but I really appreciate apples. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my tie to the cider world down here, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's neat. And you're right. We're just a couple minutes North of New Mexico. If I took off driving South from the brewery right now, I'd be there in 10 minutes. Yeah. It's amazing. I feel like I'm in some old Western story. Um, <laughs> but I can't even think of the writer right now, but let, let, let's just finish up. You, you guys, one comment each, you, there must be something that's on your mind or something that visiting brewers say, or a collab. I, I see you, you've got some cool collabs going on. Um, if you want to give a shout out to anybody else, any brewers that are working with you or. Yeah, that's, that's great. I'm glad you just said that because, uh, we're in the, our whole sales team from Colorado and Arizona are in town right now for a two day retreat and they're just wrapping it up right now. And right when we started, um, one of my, our sales rep that's with, with Kansas, uh, one of our old sales reps started Manhattan brewing company. And, um, he just dropped by a collab beer we made that I haven't even tasted yet called two tone IPA All that right. we're about to, uh, yeah, that we're about to ship out there to Kansas. And uh, so I have the first can right here. So I'm really looking forward to trying that collaboration. But love working with other brewers and actually any any other beverage producers or anything, really. Like, we just like collaborating and, and being able to just share share a beer or, or a drink with with our, you know, with kindred spirits. <laughs> yeah. Fun intended. And, and when's the anniversary party? What time of year is that? It's Labor Day weekend this year. So yeah, it'll be Labor Day weekend. So that is September. that something September. we we should all start planning for, if not this year, next year, right? Yeah, with one hundred percent, you should definitely be here, and we'll take care of you. It'll be fantastic. Wow! As long <laughs> as you reciprocate, I got to get out and spend some more time in New York. You got it, man. Come out, all these now. It's like all all the whole Northeast is like one big one big kingdom now. So. Um, but you guys are great. Thanks so much for joining me. And um, Bill, Bill and Dave from Ska Brewing and Peach Street Spirits in uh, the western slope of Colorado. Hey, big shout out to Armin Spengen, our engineer, and Alex Tran, our producing intern. Thanks so much for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Thank you, guys. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.